You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Brooke, if you could see me, you would see I'm giving you a huge standing ovation. <laughs> what you just said um, about the arts being integral to, to any economy coming back and how important it is to just, you know, the socialization of, of all of us. Uh, the arts bring people together, let alone yeah. the income it brings. I so agree with you, and I'm so thrilled. Come <laughs> <laughs> join the Broadway biz. You'll be a Broadway whiz. You'll learn to raise cash to open your smash. You'll be all the rage from the pitch to the Hi, everyone. This is Hal Luftig with my podcast, Broadway Biz. On the podcast today is Brooke Ishibashi, who is a co-founder of Be an Arts Hero. Be an Arts Hero is a grassroots organization that campaigns for proportionate relief to the arts and culture sector of the American economy. I'm looking forward to hearing all about Brooke's advocacy on this episode of Broadway Biz. Hi, Brooke. How are you? Hi, Hal. I am hanging in. <laughs> that is great. You know, and we're all doing what we have to do, right? <laughs> yeah, we are. We sure are. <laughs> uh, uh, it is a pleasure to meet you today. You are doing a ton of great, interesting work that I want us to talk about. Um, first and foremost, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your incredible organization, Be an Arts Hero? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on, folks. I'm, we're, we're so honored to, to be here and representing Being Arts Hero. So a little about me. I'm, I'm from Southern California. I was raised in Orange County where they shot my favorite movie, That Thing You Do. And I went to New York City for, for, for theater. So I was there for 11 years doing downtown experimental theater. And I did that for 11 years. I went to school at Marymount Manhattan College. And my whole family is a showbiz family. My, uh, my mom and dad are in the music industry. Uh, my sisters are both writers, singers, actors, dancers. So, you know, it's in the blood. And, and also going back further than that, it's, um, 
my my grandparents were opera singers. My my mother's mother, who's ninety five and in impeccable health, she was known as the songbird of Manzanar. So in World War II, when the Japanese were imprisoned uh, in, con- in concentration camps, my grandmother sang at the camp dances uh, when they had some. They were able to have some some form of recreation or some form of entertainment. So she's somewhat famous in the uh, Japanese American community, and so there's a lineage of music and entertainment in my family. So. That's who I am. I'm, I'm also a national counselor for Actors' Equity Association and a member of Fair Wage on Stage, a grassroots group um, in New York City. And I'm in Southern California now. So uh, last June in 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, a couple friends and I founded Be an Arts Hero, and and that's how we. Uh, that's how that how that that's how that crazy ride started. Brooke, I'd love to know the impetus for forming Be an Arts Hero. What your goal was at the time uh, that made you form this incredible group. Absolutely. Well, you know how it's it's interesting because uh, we, along with our friends Karen Olivo and Eden Espinosa, who founded Affect Change, you know these groups didn't exist before the pandemic. So we were born out of the pandemic. We were born out of a desperate need. Myself and a couple friends, uh, Jenny Grace Macholm, Carson Elrod, and Matthew Lee Earlbach, uh, we're all. Uh, in the performing arts. We're all in the arts and culture industry. We're writers, directors, singers, actors, producers. And a couple months into the pandemic, it was about, goodness, I think it was like, it was, it was actually into the, into the late spring, early summer. We looked at each other and we were, we were honestly waiting for the cavalry to come save us. And I think that was a, an ideology that a lot of uh, our colleagues had. It's like, we're the Steven Spielbergs of the world and the Lin-Manuel Mirandas of the world are going to come save the entire arts and culture sector. And I think there was this false hope that we were, we were waiting on a, on a, on a, um, omnipresent force to come save everyone, right? All of our institutions, all of our jobs, all of our workers. And that didn't happen. And rightfully so, because that's not their job. And the only people who have the infrastructure, the resources, and the know-how to provide that foundation, that support for us is, is uh, you know, federal relief. It's Congress. So we looked at each other and we were like, well, I guess we got to be the heroes that we're waiting for. What if we had a, we provided a mobilizing effort or a collective, a unified front that brought the entire arts and culture sector together? Because something we realized was everyone was out advocating for their own individual needs, right? Our unions were, our institutions were, our workers were. And so when we started taking meetings with senators and house reps, what we, we were hearing is that there was like a pile of 16 different arts and culture related bills that were just sitting in a pile collecting dust because they didn't know what to do with it because there wasn't a unified voice, right? So the, the four of us looked at each other and we said, wow, what if we created the Arts Avengers Assemble moment or the our own Voltron or our own Captain Planet moment where we bring together the entire sector. So it's arts and culture workers, shoulder to shoulder with producers, with uh, uh, cultural leaders, with institutions, with union leaders, you know, everyone, you know, it's, it's essentially envisioning, you know, the elimination of our individual silos because we realized that we were less effective with everyone advocating for their own individual needs. What if we were able to all sing the same song from the same sheet music? So that's how we started. That's incredible. And <laughs> I couldn't help but think while you were you know, describing uh, how 
BNRT or was formed, that you know this pro- this podcast is Broadway Biz, which talks about the business of Broadway, and and one of the things that we talk about on on the podcast is how shows get produced and how you have to bring all those different parts together to produce a show. And what struck me was the way you put being an arts hero together is sort of like the way a show gets (laughs) together. And I'm thinking like, wow, this woman can be a, a, you know, a producer. (laughs) (laughs) If you'll mentor me, Hal, if you'll mentor me. What is your specific role in being an arts hero? Sure. So I'm co-founder. And, you know, when we first started, because, you know, we don't know how to run a nonprofit or anything, and we're, we're, all, we're all performers and creatives, we, we first started and we were all doing all the things. So we were jacks of all trades. We, were, we had our hands in every pot. We realized very early on that we needed some sort of structure and that we needed to formalize our, our, our status as a 501c4 and figure out what that was going to mean for us and get the help that we needed. And so uh, as we created our own uh, roles and positions and departments and we started formalizing our structure, uh, it became very clear to me that what uh, what I'm good at, what I care about, and what I also, in terms of what's in line with my values, I naturally fell within the boundaries of uh, celebrity talent outreach in terms of uh, having ambassadors and working with folks who represented different sectors, different parts of the sector. And uh, I also realized that the company culture, the diversity, equity, inclusion, the um, the staffing needs, that that was something that I also uh, very much cared about and was very much in line with with my with my uh, principles, my values. So uh, that's what I that's what I'm currently doing now. I'm the director of talent outreach, and I'm also the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and a co-founder of Being Arts Zero. You said that Being Arts Zero actually began in June, which was a couple of months into the pandemic. What were the the initial goals of being our hero, and have they changed since we're now in February? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We started uh, when when we first launched at the end of June. It was simply with the goal. It was one goal: get federal pandemic unemployment compensation extended beyond August first. When we started, and that basically gave us a month to work as fast and furious as we possibly could to build coalitions, build a, an army of rank and file workers who were all you know blaring their horns and demanding an extension of this FPUC money, which was a six hundred dollar lifeline that was keeping our work in their homes and keeping food on the table, literally. Uh, at that point, we were looking at mass evictions in the millions. It was upwards of almost 40 million evictions that we were looking at. Um, we were on the brink of uh, folks who couldn't pay their bills. So at that point, we were looking to, to sustain the human infrastructure of our sector. So when we, when we started, it was Let's get FPUC extended. That and in, in, in at a very base level is what our people need to, to in order to survive. And for most folks that we knew, you know, we have friends who work for Disney who live in Florida at the base level, I think the maximum they could make for their minimum weekly benefits was 125 or 135 a week. And no one can live on that, obviously, and much less provide for a family or an elderly parent, et cetera. So we realized that that $600 lifeline was what was keeping folks literally in their homes and fed and uh, on their health insurance so during a deadly pandemic so that's what why we started hal it was simply to get fpuc extended when august first came and went and we realized that that wasn't happening for a lot of political football reasons 
we realized that our efforts couldn't just dissolve. We realized that being an arts hero needed to have a more long-term purpose. So that's when we took a step back, Hal, and we said, okay, if we're going to be around for a while because this crisis isn't over yet, we're just at the onset of the crisis, right? Then what are the needs of the sector and how can we be most useful? So we took a step back and we, we, we did some, you know, a big picture thinking and we realized okay well in the we'll have some short term and we'll have some long term goals but you know all in all we're here so that we can elevate and position the arts and culture sector of the US so that it's a legislative priority for support and for investment that's truly commensurate with our socioeconomic value in terms of the nitty-gritty of what we contribute and why the arts and culture sector is so integral to the um, the overall well-being of the entire nation's economic welfare. Um, you know, we provide $877 billion in value added to the economy. We're 5.1 million jobs, million jobs. We're 4.5% of the GDP. So they need us. And in order to rebuild, in order to rebuild back better, um, you know, there, there cannot be a full American economic recovery without a robust arts and culture recovery, because we're, our fight, our fates are so intrinsically tied together. And we're in every nook and cranny of every region, every locale, every city, every state of the entire nation. So, uh, it became evident to us that that needed to be our long-term goal. Essentially how we realized, okay, well, we started because we wanted to get FBUC extended. And as we build, as we develop, our job now is to help sustain the human and physical infrastructure of our sector as we as we move through this crisis. Uh, that's the very short-term goal and the most immediate urgent goal. And in the, in the long term, it's, you know, creating a department and secretary of arts and culture and, and uh, using all of our resources to um, to make that happen within Biden's cabinet, et cetera. So we have a lot of goals, but that's that's kind of breaking down the short term and the long term of it. Brooke, if you could see me, you would see I'm giving you a huge standing ovation. <laughs> what you just said um, about the arts being integral to to any economy coming back and how important it is to just, you know, the socialization of, of all of us. Uh, the arts bring people together, let alone yeah. the income it brings. I so agree with you and I'm so thrilled. <laughs> Brooke, I want to ask you uh, on your website, which for my listeners, um, if I would love for you to go and check it out, it's be an arts hero, all one word, dot com. And you spell it just like it sounds be an arts hero. Uh, on your website, there's a letter writing section where, where I can't believe the breadth of all these different people who have written letters uh, to their senators or Congress people. Um, how did that come about? How did you get all these people to write these letters? Sure. And, you know, it's kind of a multi-pronged answer. We, as I was saying, you know, a little bit earlier, we realized that we serve a very very unique need in the arts and culture sector because we have our amazing long-standing advocacy groups like Americans for the Arts. We have our unions, we have our grassroots organizations, but we realized that we had a very, we were very uniquely positioned because we could innately bring those forces together and be the convener. But we also realized that 
we we weren't just a, a social welfare organization and a lobbying entity pushing forward our own legislation. We weren't just an educational um, outlet. We weren't just an advocacy, a grassroots advocacy group. We were kind of a hybrid of all of those things. So as you mentioned, the Playwrights Campaign, we realized that BNR Hero basically started as a campaign. It was a campaign to get FBUC extended. So we have since launched a series of campaigns mobilizing rank-and-file, blue-collar arts workers across the nation, bringing together coalitions of different arts advocacy groups, bringing together arts and cultural institutions across the entire nation, not just Hollywood and Broadway and Chicago. You know, we're talking Alaska. We're talking Kansas. We're talking museums and libraries and publishing, et cetera, et cetera. So... The reason why I say that is because, you know, we realized that campaigns were effective in getting directly to the people, you know, like getting people, the boots on the ground folks actively engaged in in the process, actively engaged in uh, claiming what our needs are with uh, the people who, who represent us and the people who um, make our laws. So this Playwrights campaign uh, is a part of our a larger campaign called Arts Workers Unite, uh, 100 Days of Arts and Activism. And in this campaign, it was essentially 100 days mirroring Biden and Harris's first 100 days in office, uh, because you know the first 100 days, that's when the most, the most can happen, and that's when we have the most uh, opportunity for possibility and and uh, and and a huge change in those first 100 days. So we decided to launch a calendar with uh, weekly events uh, for folks to basically civically engage on a regular basis. It's you know resources for them to watch and listen to. It's uh, uh, breakdowns of policies so folks could understand it in a very rudimentary level. Uh, happy hours with arts workers so we could talk about what their experience is through this crisis, etc. And this playwright campaign became a part of it. We partnered with Dramatists Guild of America. They've been incredible. And we basically just started asking everybody. It started with playwrights and then it, then it built out to composers, librettists, lyricists, et cetera. I think right now we have over 100 letters that have been submitted. And essentially the prompt was, can you write a letter to Biden and Harris and say, this, this is who I am. This is what the arts and culture sector provides. And this is why we desperately need your help help us. And so we kind of just gave everyone that prompt and everyone wrote what was in their hearts. And it's such an eclectic bunch of folks. It's everyone from, you know, we were inspired by Jeremy O'Harris because uh, Jeremy had written an amazing letter to Biden and Harris. And we onboarded Jeremy and we said, Hey, can we, you inspired us. Can we have you be a part of this, of this movement? He agreed to it. Rachel Chafkin and Jenny Coons had written an incredible letter also asking for a department and secretary of arts and culture. They, we onboarded them and they became a part of this collaboration. Um, John Leguizamo and Michael Moore and, you know, friends of mine like Madhuri Shekhar and we had folks from all over the nation, folks who were famous, folks who were just beginning in their careers, uh, folks who were at all different points of their career, of all different backgrounds. We wanted it to be as intersectional as possible to represent the fabric of 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 our of our of our uh, industry. And we had this incredible outpouring of folks who wanted to be involved because they had something to say. And I think the key or the the most interesting part of that to me, Hal, is that. Everyone is everyone is recognized, and I'm sure everyone on this on this podcast can can agree. Everyone has recognized in the shift in this new administration as we're as we're as we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel coming through this crisis, and and we're getting um, vaccinated, and and we're kind of rounding the, the the bend. I think everyone's realizing that there's an, a unique 
area of opportunity now. Like it's almost as though a window has opened where we see an opportunity for change and everyone's thinking, oh goodness, we've got to jump. We've got to make it into that portal before it closes to be a part of this change. And it's really an individual and collective responsibility that we all have together to write that, write that new narrative together. So that's, you know, that's, that's, that was the ideology behind this campaign, Hal. It was, let's all imagine what we, what this, uh, our future can be together. And when we specifically talk about Broadway, you know, we're talking about a lot of systemic change. We're talking about we see you white American theater and groups like Karen and Eden with affect change demanding some sort of economic transparency. I think all of us are realizing, wow, as we, as we start to reopen, we have an opportunity to create a wholly new landscape. And that means all of us need to be a part of that change together collectively. So uh, that's a, a long winded way of saying that's why we did the campaign and that's what it stands for. Wow. Wow. You know, I heard you were talking about the, the, sort of change of administrations and what's done. I've heard somebody, a couple of people say actually, that it felt like during the Biden-Harris inauguration that we suddenly stepped into the light and, you know, and we got the, we can feel the sun on Hmm. us, you know, for the first time in four (laughs) years. Um, I know this is probably an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, I, you, you said that uh, your, one of your goals was to affect change within the first 100 days. Right. Um, and I know we're only 28 or 29 days or, <laughs> or into it. Do you feel at this point that uh, you are on the right track or have succeeded in affecting change in the new administration? You know, I think it's it's hard to measure success because it's sometimes it feels like ten steps forward and five steps back. I think we're we're newbies to the political landscape, and we're we've been very grateful to get taken under the wings of of folks that are far more experienced than 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 we are. Uh, that being said, you know we've had a lot of incredible allies in the uh, who are lobbyists who uh, are working alongside us. Uh, we have incredible relationships with Senate and House rep offices, some of which I can't ex- exactly go into, but, you know, I can't go in, into the, the um, intricacies of the relationships. But I will say that we, it's hard to, it's hard to measure success, right? But I will say that we, in the last, what is it, seven to eight months since we've been alive as being arts hero, we've met with, I think by this point, we've had hundreds of meetings with Senate and House rep offices, many, uh, repeat meetings with folks who we're working more closely with. Um, I think in terms of affecting change, how do I feel as, as though we've been successful? I think we've made incredible strides. If we're talking specifically about legislative goals, you know, we developed Dawn when you're talking about the light, the, the light, you know, we, we named this uh, bill summary that we developed Dawn and it's defend arts workers now. And the reason why, we created that in the first place as we were taking meetings. And I think it was Kamala Harris's office who told us that, you know, do you have your own bill? And so we said, no, isn't that your job? We're just, we're just arts advocates. Like, what are you talking about? And they said, we'll just write a draft of a summary and, and send it to us and, you know, and, and we'll see what happens. And, and many offices were telling us the same thing. So we create, we essentially created the intelligible principle that is done. So it was asking for $43.85 billion uh, for the entire arts and culture sector in the form of grants. 
And we got that number because we use the same model that the airlines use. It was 5% of their contribution to the nation's economy. So we did 5% of 877 billion. We got $43.85 billion. And that's what we asked for. We thought that was fair. And the airline industry is such an incredible model because look, they got 25 billion in the CARES Act and then they got more shortly thereafter. And they have incredible lobbyists. And we realized, wow, if we provide $265 billion more than all of transportation combined, not just the airline industry, not just 10 U.S. airlines, if 10 U.S. airlines got $25 billion, we can ask for the same amount. In fact, we we deserve more than that. We require more than that in order to sustain ourselves. So we just use that same template. And that's how we developed Dawn. And so we're now in a position where we're almost ready to go public with the newly expanded, evolved version of Dawn and what it represents and who we're officially working with. And I think we're going to be announcing that pretty soon. But, you know, all of that is to say, if I, if I, feel as though we've we've been successful in our in our efforts i think yes i think we still have a long way to go hal you know and i know this is i think something that we're going to discuss later on but we were so we were so inspired and emboldened by the passage of save our stages sos and the fact that that was possible meant that anything was possible because it was un, it was it was heralded it was it was historical and unprecedented in every in every way. We have never been able to acquire that much money for the arts and culture sector through federal, you know, federal federal means in in our in our entire nation's history. So it really marked a turning point for us where we realized, oh my goodness, this is this is a keen opportunity now where we can really anything is really possible and we truly do need to bring all of these partners together throughout the entire sector because this is the chance we have to all work together and demand more because that's just the beginning. Not only am I now standing and cheering, I'm like jumping (laughs) up and down. (laughs) What you just described is amazing, is amazing. And um, I think you mentioned you uh, save our stages um, and I think that was born out of being part of the Broadway League and, and the organization that helped push that along. Absolutely. Um, was born out of not only helping the people who are who so desperately need help in terms of rent, medical insurance, food, uh, those things. But it also was because I, for the first time, I think all of the senators and congresspeople, uh, wherever they come from, there's a theater either in their town or city or one very close. Exactly. It all realizes, you mentioned earlier, that it, when there's not a theater or a performing arts center, everybody's hurting. Um, the, the jobs that are lost you know, at that theater, the jobs that are lost at restaurants who patrons go to, you know, the, th- the restaurants they go to, you know, hotels, taxis, everything. And I, th- I think for the first time in maybe ever, uh, everyone's eyes were open to not only the importance uh, culturally of the arts, but the economics of it, too. Um, and I, I think what you guys were able to do in a short amount of time uh, is is amazing. And so hats off, you know, once again. Thank um, you, Hal. Brooke, I wanted to jump to the future for a second, <laughs> if I may. Don't and we all want to jump to the future? <laughs> what do you imagine Be an Arts Hero will look like post the epidemic? Right. You know, something I mentioned a little earlier is that 
we're still in the thick of the crisis, right? I think all of us can acknowledge, you know, within the Broadway community, within the entire arts and culture sector that we're not out of the woods yet. And so we still have a lot of work to do. Something that we realized after care, you know, after cares, after the skinny bill was passed, after SOS was passed was that there's still a lot of work to be done. I think what we were starting to metabolize is that, you know, one round of, uh, of a stimulus package and the relief that that brings to our institutions and, and our workers, that's simply not enough, right? That we were going to require subsequent waves, successive waves of relief and recovery legislation in order for us to survive because we are looking at a human and a physical infrastructure that needs to be sustained because everything is imploding. You know, we're looking at the fabric of our entire sector just completely tearing apart. And so, you know, we can look we can look at um, previous um, packages and and relief efforts as a band-aid on a hemorrhage and and so we're looking at a more comprehensive solution and so we're we're realizing that it's we're gonna we're gonna need to get um as much relief and recovery passed it coming through this crisis and coming out of this crisis in order for us to rebuild. I think that's why, you know, so Americans for the Arts has created the incredible putting creative workers to work proposal. And it's essentially envisioning an arts new deal, you know, and we've had incredible talks with Rachel Chavkin and Jenny Coons and Jeremy O'Harris and Lear de Bessonet about what a federal theater project would look like, what a WPA 2.0 would look like. And so as if, if you're asking how, you know, what, what I envision post-COVID being arts here looking like, I think if the relief and recovery efforts, if we've gotten it all by then and we're all golden and our human, our human and physical infrastructure has been sustained, then awesome. The next step after that, and that's going to take a good while because at this point we've already seen, you know, massive closures, permanent closures. Um, and the sadly, the human toll of this is, you know, we're seeing folks who haven't been able to hang on. They've already been evicted. They've already lost their health insurance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even more morbidly, we have huge rates of suicide at that, this point within the arts and culture sector because folks don't have a lifeline anymore and they don't know when they're going to be able to return to their, to their lives. They, they feel like they have nothing to grasp onto. So as we look, as we consider that and we look forward, we have to think about what are we going to do to tend to the hemorrhage within the arts and culture sector to preserve our institutions, to, to sustain our workers, to keep everybody alive and afloat. We have to look at that. And then once we get a handle on that, we look at, okay, what's post-COVID, uh, post, post-COVID, um, what's that climate going to look like? I think for us, it is uh, in working with the Biden administration in developing a department and secretary of arts and culture, I think it is creating what is essentially going to become, you know, a, a WPA 2.0. I think for us, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier, what do we need to do to make sh- to to ensure that the entire arts and culture sector is a legislative it is treated as a, a legislative priority in terms of investment and support that truly matches our socioeconomic value. What does that mean? And I think that's a conversation we all have to have together. So Be An Arts Hero is having conversations with folks like you, Hal, with uh, leaders throughout the industry, with, with working file folks, with our unions and our guilds and our associations to figure out what that actually means. Like, What are the granular details of what it means for us to be a true legislative priority? And like you said, it's it's about looking at our ecosystems and, and saying, this is this is our value and communicating that to our our lawmakers so that 
we're able to sustain ourselves. So I think it's a very, a big picture um, approach that we have, but, you know, it's going to take all hands on deck. And that's why, you know, we talked about envisioning the future together. I think all of us have to be a part of that conversation together. And that means basically everyone coming to the table together and, and, agreeing to the fact that this change needs to happen. We need to be a part of this change, but also, you know, demanding that we have a seat at the table uh, when it comes to, you know, a, a literal department or a secretary, because there's a, there's a, you know, a secretary of transportation. If we provide $265 billion more than all of transportation, why do they have a secretary when we, when we don't have a secretary? So that's a whole other conversation about arts and culture being politicized. And we also want to be a part of changing that conversation. Yeah. And, and as, as you should. And I agree. I think it's not just the here and now that this conversation has to happen, but it has to continue happening, you know, into the future um, for hopefully many, many years and through many administrations. Um, I just worry that sometimes people have a short memory. So organizations <laughs> like yours are great because you won't, you know, you won't let up on the pedal. You, know, you, you said one thing that just uh, I want our my listeners to hear again, which is that people have committed suicide because you know they've been cut yeah. off, uh, you know, from their lifeline. Uh, people have lost their homes, right. you know, because they can't pay the rent, things like that. And I actually know people who are down to. Do I use whatever money I have to buy medication that I need or to buy food? Yep. And, you know, it's like crazy. You should never be down to that. And I'm sure, uh, and I hope, every person listening to this, it will touch their heart and they'll want to do something. So how can someone, one of our listeners, uh, become involved in being an arts hero? Yeah, absolutely. Th and thank you for acknowledging that, Hal. You know, I think we have to look at the, as morbid as it is, we have to look at the the human toll of this crisis and acknowledge the fact that that it's not over yet and it is going to get worse before it gets better uh, because relief, you know, relief hasn't gotten to people fast enough and we're already measuring in incredible losses. So in order, for, in, in terms of how people can get, can get involved, you know, Directly with Be An Arts Hero, if you go to beanartshero.com, as you said, Hal, there's, there is a get involved section and, and it's for individuals and institutions, if you, et cetera. And we have tools for folks. So on a very basic level, it's demand the, the, um, lifelines that our workers and our institutions need, whether that's specific piece of legislation that's coming down the pipeline or just simply the extension of, of unemployment, uh, extra, of, um, pardon me, emergency employment, unemployment benefits um, to help sustain our people, whether it's COBRA subsidies, et cetera. Folks should, should be singing that song as at the top of their lungs and frankly, pestering their lawmakers as often as they possibly can. You know, what we want, what being a hard zero wants is for all 5.1 million arts workers who, who fall within the arts and culture sector to be tweeting, texting, calling, sending letters to their lawmakers every, every day, because really that's, that's the change that we require in order to get these bills passed in order to, to see these provisions getting tucked into subsequent stimulus packages, et cetera. So what we want is for everybody to be pestering their lawmakers as often as they possibly can. In terms of what 
these folks should be asking for in terms of how to do it. We have a lot of that laid out on our website and on our social media, on our Instagram, et cetera. So we have all of the um, senators' uh, social media handles and phone numbers and addresses available in a spreadsheet. We have sample call scripts that we tweak based on you know what's on the docket on any given day uh, that folks can follow if they don't know what to say when they leave a message when they call their reps. We have a uh, all these tools, we have action network letters, so people can just type in their names and send a letter, you know, at the as simple as just pressing a button. We have pre-written tweets that post that pre-populated tweets people can just pull up on their on their their mobile phone or on their laptop and just hit send. So we try to make civic engagement and advocacy and activism really easy for folks. So if folks just go to beanartshero.com or go to our social media pages, we have a link tree with all of those assets just lined up f- for them. But essentially, how you know, long story short, it's just be a loud squeaky wheel, you know, and and we need everyone to be a loud squeaky wheel in order for us to in order for us to survive. So it's really just all of us acknowledging that we have a duty to save our save ourselves and save our community, and um, it's not going to happen if we're not all raising our voices. Yeah, very true. And I hope that um, you mentioned the 5 million people that work in the industry. I hope that anybody who has ever gone to the theater, who loves the theater, who wants to support the theater will get involved in this too, because that person or people will be a very important part on how we come back. Uh, And, and you know, they're not only showing up at the theater is important, which I hope everyone does, but making sure that we sustain this industry. Um, so I hope everyone who's listening um, will think about or possibly take action on um, getting involved in writing a letter and raising your voice uh, to make sure that not just Broadway, but every community theater, every kind of arts group has, every nonprofit has the, the sort of infrastructure you know, at hand when they need it to sustain. So please, I implore you, uh, go to be an arts hero and and get involved. Um, Brooke, be I'm going to now like jump to a more personal, if I if I may, you know, a couple of questions. Sure. Um, I'm always interested in in you know what people have learned during this, you know, this pandemic, Um, you know, in the beginning, we all thought it was going to be, you know, a month or two months and no one really took it, you know, okay. But now it looks like it's, it's at least a year, if not a year and a half until we, we can come back. Um, I'm curious as to what is the, I guess, greatest or biggest thing that you have learned over this, this shutdown. You know, I would say, I would say, in terms of the the work that I've been doing and and being an arts hero, the biggest the 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 biggest lesson or the biggest surprise or lesson thing that I've learned is that individuals really have the power to affect change. You know. The four of us, when we started, we didn't think we would be working on a national level. We didn't think we would be, you know, in Harris and Schumer's offices. We didn't think that we didn't envision that's where we were going to be. Uh, we didn't think that that's what our 2020 was going to look like. But it's the idea that, you know, we didn't exist before the pandemic. We decided that we, we needed to do something and that, 
you know, folks like us who didn't have legislative lobbying backgrounds, you know, I didn't, I don't have a degree in political science. I don't, I, this is not something that we were trained to do that we really just had a lot of moxie and a lot of grit and we decided to, to do something. So that to me is an incredible lesson. And that also speaks to Eden and Karen and affect change that speaks to, you know, Neva and, and Neva national independent venue association that didn't exist before the pandemic either coming together, working with the Broadway league and getting SOS passed, you know, uh, the fact that, that that was possible, that individuals came together to create such profound change is just utterly remarkable to me. So that was, that was one thing I learned kind of on a, a level that's related to the work that we're doing. And then on a very personal level, all those things aside, how I would say, you know, I've learned about resilience. I've seen res- human resilience in ways that are shocking and humbling and, uh, and just incredibly mesmerizing over the last year, just seeing how much all of us can withstand, you know, especially for us in the theater industry, you know, we were the first ones to shut down. We'll be the last ones to reopen. And for a lot of us, we won't have jobs for the foreseeable future. And that's incredibly terrifying and, and, and humbling. But to see folks in the theater industry learn how to navigate a completely new world with so many unknowns and so many uh, factors that are out of our control and to see the resilience required from these incredible humans, you know, all around us, it's been, it's been moving and it's also been, it's just been very humbling. Yeah, that is, that is very true. I've seen, like you, I've seen people rise to the occasion in, in unthinkable ways that, they probably never thought they could do, and yet they they have done it. Doesn't mean we all don't want to get back as soon as possible. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Brooke, uh, as we're winding down, I wanted to ask you another futuristic question. As we come back, you know, through this pandemic, and as you know, theaters start opening up, and we all tackle the questions of diversity and inclusion, um, and and things like that. What is the greatest or what is the most important thing that you hope changes uh, as you know, we move forward? Well, I think it is a lot of things. If I were to simplify it um, in one sentiment, I think it has to do with the most marginalized and oppressed and disadvantaged communities having a seat at the table. being able to voice uh, what their needs are and uh, getting support that they require. I think, you know, on a very personal level as a performer, I want the work that is being produced on stage, on TV and film, et cetera. I want that to reflect the world that we live in. I want that to represent the stories and the experiences of the world that we live in. I want the our, our, the boards at every theater to reflect, you know, different experiences. And that's about looking at the models that we're following uh, and, you know, looking at who has access and who doesn't have access and having conversations and accountability measures, you know, that, that are essentially correcting imbalances uh, that are keeping keeping up um, unfair systemic uh, structures. So, you know, I think in a very general level, I think it's about having conversations and doing the work to include the folks who need to be in on those conversations 
And that just requires a lot of legwork and more time. But I also think it's about, you know, everyone willing to have uncomfortable conversations and be open to radical change. And, you know, sometimes it is about ceding your your time or your space uh, to someone else who um, should be contributing, you know, in an equal way. And I think all of us have to be aware of what that means for us individually, because I know that I innately have a lot of privilege in my own ways. So I'm very much dealing with that uh, question on a regular basis myself. You know, how can I cede my space and my privilege to someone else who, um, who, need, who, who who's maybe not so um, uh, privileged to have the platform that I, that I may have in the same way. So, you know, it is a very, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a big conversation, Hal, but I think it's about everyone being willing to have the conversation and being willing to be uncomfortable through the change. And, you know, it's about accountability. I think uh, that we're all that we're all holding holding ourselves to a different standard. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I, when this is over, you know, one of the first things I'm going to do, I'm going to meet you in what you're saying. I couldn't agree more. And how you're saying it, it is so important that we have those conversations. And you know, it's okay to be uncomfortable, and we can't change if we're not willing to ask an uncomfortable question. And hear what might be an uncomfortable answer. That's the only way I, that I know that things change. So exactly. you have my word that as we move out of this, uh, I, that's exactly what I will be doing. Um, oh, Hal, you're the best. And we would, you know, we we just appreciate the fact that you you're having these conversations, you're doing everything you're doing, and that you know you invited us to be a part of this conversation because. We, we, we really do have to look at ourselves. There have been, you know, unfair power dynamics that we've all, you know, subscribed to in some ways. And it's given folks a false idea of, you know, being able to have conversations or not. And I think, you know, we say the term arts worker because I'm an arts worker, you're an arts worker, everybody on this call is an arts worker. So why can't we just look at each other through that lens and, and discuss what do we need to do together? What are our roles in that, in that, you know, moving forward and how do we have that conversation? So it's, you know, it's about uh, leveling out the playing field, but, but for all of us truly to say, okay, well, we're all arts workers in this, in, in this, in the arts and culture sector. So, you know, we, we gotta, we gotta, we're in this, you know, shoulder to shoulder and we got to look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectly said. Well, Brooke, you know, as the expression goes, like all good things, this has to come to an end. Uh, I would love to, as we move out of this pandemic, have you as a guest again so we can discuss what has happened, you know, not just theoretically, but what has actually happened and how we see that continuing to happen. So um, I hope you'll think about rejoining me at some point. Oh, absolutely. Brooke, I... I don't want to say goodbye because I think <laughs> Brooke, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm sure you've, you've imparted so many brilliant things. And I hope our listeners, please, um, if you love theater, get involved, raise your voice, write a letter. Um, now's the time we need your help. And uh, I can't thank you enough, Brooke. Stay well, stay healthy, stay safe. Because when this is over, I want to meet you in the back of a theater someday. That would be incredible. Thank you so much, Hal, and everybody. It was such a pleasure. It's a date.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. Broadway Biz is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, is produced by Dylan Marie Parent and Kevin Connor, and is edited by Derek Gunther. Our theme music is by Nell Benjamin and Larry O'Keefe. Be sure to subscribe to Broadway Biz and follow us on Instagram at Broadway Biz Podcast. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.